overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are reading Slaughterhouse-Five. This is the fourth installment of our six-part series, and we're discussing chapters six, seven, and eight today. I'm Ben Adams, and with me is a whole panel of overthinkers to talk about uh, the book. So first we have the world's foremost expert on Slaughterhouse-Five, Shana Miloski. Hey, Ben. And actually, today, I think we are joined by the world's second most foremost expert on Slaughterhouse-Five, Matt Rather, because he finished the book now. I so. couldn't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't help it. <laughs> Matt, Matt, you made it a lot further in Slaughterhouse-Five uh, resisting than Ender's Game. So, you know, progress. Year progress. by year, I'm getting stronger. <laughs> uh, next in the alphabet, we have John Parrott. Hey, John. What up? How you doing? Uh, next to him, we've got Jordan Stokes. How's it going, guys? And the previously mentioned Matt Rather. Hey, Matt. Hey, uh, every day I open the window and make love to the air. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. And, yeah, and then for, I, for making the world in a very small way a better place. <laughs> then I go and manage the boys on their paper routes. Oh, gosh. Well, let's let's start off. Let's talk about structure, since these three chapters are kind of they're structured in a very particular way, but I don't think it's immediately obvious. So, so Matt, I think you wanted to say something about that. So here's look here's the experience that 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 I had reading this. Like I found myself very very moved in in chapter eight. I was really hit by the. Uh, I was really hit by the firebombing of Dresden in a way that I hadn't expected to be emotionally, um, for a lot of reasons, some of them that we've talked about on this podcast. Uh, the novel gives everything away before it before it happens, right? You know exactly what's going to happen. You know that this is the big, this is the big climax, uh, and that there's going to be someone shot for, for stealing a teapot, right? And that's sort of the other climax that, that we're building to. Um, we also have the uh, example of a Tralfamadorian pros- prosody um, with the the novel consisting of telegrams and it's just a bunch of of sort of disorganized moments which when viewed together give give a sort of beautiful picture of of the state of life uh but no no tension and release um and i had such an experience of kind of mounting tension and and release uh that i was i was sort of wondering i i was sort of driven to wonder how it was done and that's actually one of the things that propelled me through the last couple chapters as as well, why I kind of couldn't, uh, why I kind of couldn't stop. So just like, just like the book is not troubled by the the apparent contradiction between being an anti-war book and being a book that says, uh, or where certain people make the claim that war is inevitable, right? Because it's not it's not necessarily that the book says that war is inevitable or that everything has to happen in a certain way. That's one of the ideas that emerges in the book, and it's contextualized. Uh, it's contextualized in in certain ways, um, but still, there's no problem with with contradiction there right because it's it's about uh it's about what happens to a person uh who's gone through this sort of experience in the way that billy pilgrim does in the way that kurt vonnegut did uh and will and always has um it's it's uh you know it's about the the sort of internal reorganization and the the kind of narrative reorganization the reorganization of a person's ideas about themselves um that happens when when 
uh, when this happens. And and the um, the so there are, then at the, in the same way, it's not troubled at all. I think by the um, by the uh, sort of postmodern um, technique of, you know, flat characters and uh, narrative that's, um, you know, narrative that's kind of crazy, uh, nonlinear narrative, uh, sort of piecemeal fragmented narrative um, with, you know, uh, the uh, Brechtian alienation effect of giving away what happens so that you are sort of watching a process rather than being... um, you know, rather than being kind of invested in characters, and actually we should talk about characters and about the the rousing defense of the American way of life that is um, uh, given by a person who is called out as being a, a, a character. Um, it's it's not really, but I digress. It's not really troubled by the the contradiction between that mode and deploying really masterfully, really effectively uh, a sense of mounting. Um, uh, a sense of kind of mounting tension uh, that's released here in a surprising way. So I'm I'm talking specifically about the about the barbershop quartet and the way the barbershop quartet are compared to the four guards standing uh, surveying the rubble for the first time, whose mouths uh, the description is I think something along the lines of they tried on one facial expression and then they tried on another. And the I I think that this is not. Uh, uh, explicit, but I think the the motion of their mouths as they sort of stare in horror, uh, as they you know, as they make their face makes kind of a rictus of of uh, you know loss or of amazement of surprise, right, uh, is compared with the kind of synchronized motion of the faces of the four. Um, of the four barbershop of the four singers in the barbershop quartet, uh, and the the kind of sweet and sour notes that they you know that they strike, and the particular content of the song, which is something along the lines of "Gee, I wish I could see, uh, I wish I could see my old friends again," right? And the um, uh, and the kind of the tragedy setting and realizing that they'll never see any of their friends again. They're you so- know. They're all gone. So one thing worth noting here is that this is, unlike a lot of what happens in the novel, an experience that's accessible to people who have a conventional understanding of time, not just the unstuckness in time that Billy Pilgrim has. Because it's one of the things that's perceived linearly. He's at this party in Ilium, New York, many, many years after the firebombing of Dresden, and he reminisces about this, you know, this vignette with these four German guards with their heads together. That's something that any human being who experienced these events in chronological order could do. And I think that's the closest we might come for a bit to Vonnegut sort of gently nudging us towards a moral. It's that, you know, if you if you want to derive meaning from life, that's fine. I mean, granted, you're going to be deriving it from these unconnected instances that will help illustrate but not necessarily convince you of the beauty and humanity of all shared human experience. But, you know, if you if you were to do it, this is one of the ways you might go about it. 
if you've felt something similar in your own life, it wasn't weird, you're not alone, this is the sort of thing that happens to people, including Billy Pilgrim. Right, and the memory, the, for, the, the force of, I mean, the force of memory, and memory, memory is being inexperienced. I, I'm not sure, I mean, this is a, a minor nitpick, um, but it's, it's not, strictly speaking, linear, right? Because we get, the, we get the, the echo of it first in, in the form of music, and then the, the sort of content um, of the memory later. But I guess that does actually mirror the experience uh, of having a memory, especially of having a memory that you've forgotten or striven to forget uh, because it was because it was traumatic. Now, well, one of the one of the things we know now as twenty first century readers, which probably wasn't obvious to Vonnegut at the time, is that the process of memory. And I think we've actually talked about this in the context of reviewing Slaughterhouse Five. The process of memory, neurologically, is as much a process of reconstruction and even a little bit anticipation as it is a process of revisiting. In other words, and I'm probably botching some of it, so I hope the you know, I hope the more talented biologists on the podcast can chime in. But I, I think in some instances, you know, what we what we think of in our heads as memory really is a process of creation that we start doing prior to when we're con- when we consciously recognize the thing that we think is triggering the memory. Hmm. I think um, that last scene of uh, chapter eight, which I guess you can't really call a scene because it's a bunch of different scenes smushed together. I think it worked for me um, in the accumulation of all the different, I don't know, threads that were being pulled together all at once. Um, as you said, John, you have that sort of realistic situation where he is at a party, he lies down, he has a memory, not a flashing through time experience, and we can get that. That's very relatable. Um, but also at the end of the chapter, or actually throughout uh, all three of these chapters, you have sort of these fantasy elements as well, like um, the guard sort of um, morphing into the barbershop court head and morphing back in this very surreal way or um, previous to the bombing Dresden being described in this uh, fantastic way like it's supposed to be Oz or you see um, these gargoyles from up above and uh, Billy is thinking of it as a fantasy land and then at the same time he's comparing when it is uh, bombed afterwards to the moon and we're flashing back and forth between um, Earth and Trafalmador and on Trafalmador um, the story becomes a story again because because Montana says to him, uh, tell me a story, Billy Boy. And then he tells the story as if it's a science fiction tale um, of him being on the moon, but the moon is Dresden. So you have um, like reality, fantasy, surrealism, science fiction, um, meta-literary conceits, all accumulating in this way and all somehow blending together. And for me, um, just the accumulation of it felt very... I don't want to say climactic because there there really is no climax in this book for me, but it it was overwhelming in a way that I thought was quite beautiful. I don't know if anyone else felt that. Yeah, no, I thought I thought so too. And it was the same. It was a like a very sort of very sort of emotional sort of overwhelming experience for me as well. And the, and and I think that is I mean that is a climax, right? That is to say, in the sense that it's 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 there's been a, a pattern of kind of rising tension, right, or of of kind of uh, preparation that's led up to um that's led up to an inflection point where all the you know all the preparation that you've been you've been uh given kind of comes comes to pass um one more thing right we know that the barbershop quartet is dead because we see them die in the uh in the plane crash before 
the uh, bombing of Dresden and before the the kind of pivotal uh, moment they have for Billy in the in the memory of that. One more one more point of structure that I want to leave. Um, that, that I want to just uh, open up. There, there is in this particular set of chapters from six to eight that we're considering uh, in in this discussion today a very particular movement that has to do with with Billy as a Christ figure. Um, in, in, I'm so excited. <laughs> no, it's especially for you um, when the uh, when the. Um, he wakes up uh, after his morphine night uh, in the hospital in the the extermination camp for Russian prisoners of war. Um, the sounds that are coming from outside as as the British soldiers are digging a new latrine, right, like are called uh, Golgotha sounds, right? Golgotha uh, being being the um, the place where uh, Jesus was crucified. Um, and the uh, the according to Wikipedia, the Greek transcription in the New Testament of an Aramaic term that has uh, been presumed to be Golgotha. Uh, the Bible translates the the term to mean place of the skull. Um, so uh, the the place where Jesus was crucified and. The last thing that happens in chapter eight is they're put to bed in a stable, right? And so it is, it's a life of Christ in reverse from crucifixion to nativity, uh, outside and in, uh, you know, outside and in. Um, and I, and I thought that like, that was, that was, I'm not, I'm not totally sure it adds up that that's like the controlling, well, no, I'm, I'm sure it's not like a, uh, a sort of master narrative, uh, for the book or even for these sections, but, uh, but in a book that's, that is kind of resolutely insisting, uh, that it's a bunch of telegrams, um, or that it has to be a bunch of telegrams in order to uh, to cope with what it's trying to represent. I thought that was a very very neatly constructed little bit of uh, little bit of structure. That in this particular passage we have that passage, but in reverse. I think it's a really wonderful reading, and uh, my high school self would just uh, be dying to hear that. So thanks, Matt. Um, but I wonder how uh, it's complicated by the fact that in the very same chapter, Kilgore Trout is described as the cracked messiah, and he was the one um, who wrote that story in a previous chapter um, that is a, a new version of the New Testament. Um, and he was also uh, described in this chapter as having like this big, bushy beard as if he is supposed to be this bizarre, um, you know, biblical figure. And he also talks about um, God in an interesting way when he's talking to that woman at the party whose yeah. name Maggie um, and <laughs> tells her that on Judgment Day, um, God is going to tell you all of the things you said and all of the things you did and um, you're going to go to hell if any of those things were bad, which is um, you know so interesting if you think of God in that sense. Um, 
um, as sort of the writer of your um, writing down what happened in your life, and therefore Vonnegut is the god to uh, Billy Pilgrim writing down his life, maybe not in the right order, but it's still being uh, written down there. But then, of course, you know, Trout laughs uproariously because, you know, this is a silly thing to think about. He um, doesn't believe that what is written down is real. Uh, Maggie asks him if um, all of his books are true because authors get asked that a lot, which is hilarious. Um, And he says, yes, of course, everything in books are true because if you wrote down something that was a lie, that would be fraud. And, you know, advertisers can't even do that. That's that's wrong. And yet later in the chapter, um, we learn that Trout like, is yearning for something that is untrue. Like, he believes in extrasensory perception and time windows, and he's desperately trying to get proof about it and get other people to believe him about it, um, as if he is sort of mocking the fact that he is a prophet, um, but then later on, uh, seriously trying to be a prophet who's bringing these scientific truths to the masses. So I don't really know how that whole bit with Trout... Uh, complicates your reading, Matt, but it's an interesting juxtaposition for I mean, me. For me, Trout is is like a voice crying out in the wilderness. You know, prepare ye the way of Billy Pilgrim, right? Like he is, he speaks of the one who is to come after him. He is not worthy to unfasten the lace on his painted silver boot. Nice, Matt. Can I can I blow your mind for a minute, please? So, like, not two pages after the Golgotha bit is Billy Pilgrim's one sermon where he tells you, you know, like, uh, that, uh, that if, if you think that the fact that I'm going to die is sad, then you haven't understood one thing that I've said. So what's the thing that Jesus does in between being born and dying as well? He preaches, right? right? And here it is in, in between again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, and yet not as I will, uh, but as you will, right, in, the, in Gethsemane. Well, in that case, then I guess he gets reborn twice because right after that speech, he dies. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he experiences death for a little while. Oh, no. Does he experience birth right after? I don't remember. Maybe he doesn't. Eh, never mind. Don't listen to me. Uh, that's one of the, the repeating things, right? Like, there was there was a part earlier where he went from birth to death or death to birth, and it was, like, purple on one end and red on the other. Right. And here it's just purple, but they don't go back to birth this time. Okay, thanks. Sorry, I didn't remember. Spoiler alert, the afterlife is purple. <laughs> so one, one other thing that comes up uh, just before the section you talked about, rather, in Chapter 6 that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to talk about is something I, I hinted at in the last section we reviewed, which is Billy's brief, mysterious experience with his, uh, with his coat uh, hanging over the foot of his cot, where he wakes up in the... He wakes up in the hospital in the dark, and he's been high on morphine for a bit, and his coat is draped over the cot, and he has this experience, which I'm sure is familiar to most of us, of waking up in a strange place and seeing something unfamiliar in the dark and not really knowing what it is. And he's he's convinced that it's a, it's a living creature, like a giant bat, and he's drawn by what he describes as animal magnetism. He uses that phrase several times. Uh, and he feels around the thing until he finds these two small objects in there, which are giving off some sort of radiations. So, based on that, I, I think this. I think this also ties into the whole Tralfalmador novel thing and Vonnegut's ideas about the ability to derive meaning from events in life, which is 
to, to put it bluntly, we're all sort of fumbling in the dark here. We're all sort of latching on to things that seem meaningful and interpreting them as best we can while perhaps injured, while perhaps emotionally or physically distraught. And whatever we derive from them, whether it's, you know, these weird little objects or terror in the night is, you know, equally valid. We later find out that one of these objects is, of course, the, the two-carat diamond, which he gives to his wife uh, as an engagement ring when returning from the war. And the other is a set of dentures, or the top set, I guess, of a set of dentures that uh, does not apparently yet have a deeper meaning. I found that really interesting because um, one of the questions that this book has, um, which I'm, I'm sort of convinced that it doesn't really care what the answer is, but one question that's there is, is Billy Pilgrim actually unstuck in time or is he just a crazy person, right? And this episode with the animal magnetism um, suggests that even if he did come unstuck in time, he also has this other little episode where he thinks something vaguely supernatural is happening to him, which, as far as we can tell, is just an episode of craziness. Um, and he takes one of those things that he finds and he, he makes it meaningful himself later on by turning it into a wedding ring, right? Um, but the other one apparently just sits in a drawer. And I, I have not read ahead in the book. Maybe it'll turn out to be significant. But I'm, I'm sort of... My, my, my feeling, at least now, is that that one turns out to be utterly worthless. It's just trash. So he, like everybody else, is kind of putting together a worldview out of things that he encounters randomly. And some he's able to successfully incorporate and others just sort of clutter up his life a bit. And the fact that he, um, you know, I'll say probably actually is having this unstuck-in-time and alien uh, abduction thing going on doesn't make him special in any way in terms of how he's able to, con- to sort of make meaning in the world. Well, if I'm remembering correctly, and again, uh, my memory is not good. Um, it, didn't he put the uh, the piece of the denture with his uh, collection of cufflinks that he has? Am I right about that? You know, a yeah, yeah. No, it, it did say that, but it didn't seem like. Um, no, I'm adding to your point. I'm not contradicting your point, uh, Sticks. Oh. I just wanted to make sure on that. <laughs> and I was um, just trying to be as defensive as I could possibly be. <laughs> Grr. Um, no, um, the cufflinks, uh, the, I wrote down this quotation, um, that one of them, had, they were little roulette wheels that really worked. He had another pair which had a real thermometer in one and a real compass in the other. And this repetition of the word real as if he's insisting upon it that these things um, not only have meaning but have practical value, even though he, you know, just keeps them in a drawer and barely ever uses them, um, I guess is uh, very, uh, I don't know, it has something to do with his memories of the war as well. Like, um, if I put this little um, piece of memorabilia in a drawer from the war, it will have a purpose, uh, like these little cufflinks. It will... Uh, be practical for me someday. I may never take it out. I may never use it, but it's it's real. It happened, and I can use it somehow. Now he probably won't, but maybe that's what he's what his thought process is. Well, all of the the things that are in the cufflink drawer, kind of harkening uh, back to earlier in the book, that they, they sound like things you could buy at a gift shop, and that that's how you get meaning is just because you exactly. found these things at a gift shop. Um, and so it's interesting that it, he compares this war relic. From a very meaningful time in his life, presumably this the this kind of fracturing event of the his POW experience with things that his children bought for him as kind of like a pro forma birthday gift. 
I mean, and also we've been talking for weeks and weeks, and and in these chapters as well, it's um, very, uh, you know, it's part of it as well about what he is wearing specifically, or what all of the characters are wearing. Um, in this case, the Cinderella boots are, um, you know, a big one, um, and how he is creating either creating an image for himself or more likely having other people create an image for him by throwing clothes on him to make him look like, uh, in this case, a light opera figure or people giving him cufflinks to make him into a father or him giving this diamond uh, to a woman to uh, make her his wife. Um, All these ideas about using uh, clothing to create an identity for yourself or uh, more particularly for other people. While we're, while we're talking, I want to talk about something that we see with Billy Pilgrim's identity, because I think there's actually an interesting, we've been talking about him as a character as being kind of a cipher, but I think in these three chapters, we actually see something of an evolution. It happens somewhat out of order, uh, but I was struck by the fact that very shortly after, I think within a couple pages of the the person on the street approaching him and basically saying, like, you look like a fool, thinking that he has this ridiculous outfit on as kind of a, as a goof on the, the Germans or something. Just a few, and he's kind of oblivious. He, he really doesn't know what they're talking about because he's so out of it, and he had so little agency in putting this outfit together. Uh, but then just a couple pages later, we have him getting on the plane that he knows is going to crash. And his the reason he says that he gets on the plane is because he didn't want to look like a fool. Like, that, that's the reason he's going to get on this plane where everybody's going to die and he's going to go through immense pain is, well, he didn't want to look like a fool. So he, he has agency here. He doesn't want to look like a fool, um, whereas before he, he clearly didn't care because the way he was marching down the street with, you know, silver boots and this ridiculous jacket that doesn't fit and, and all this other nonsense. And then after the plane crash, he's evolved into to something different where now he's had this experience with uh, his time on another planet and jumping through time. And so by the time of his death, he, he accepts his death because of his philosophy, because of the way he's looking at the world. So he kind of allows this assassination for a reason. It's not because he's afraid of looking silly if he accepts police protection or something like that. Right. And the fact that he's willing to write a letter to the editor being like, by the way, I was kidnapped by aliens that look like toilet plungers suggests that silliness is no longer a uh, major driving motivation for his, his actions. Right. And the, it's, it's interesting just to see his reasons, how they've shifted from before. He, he didn't care if he looked like a fool just because he didn't really have any goal whatsoever. And then in the middle, he cares. And then at the end, he doesn't care again. But now it's because he has this kind of larger philosophical view of the world. Which is interesting. So what do we, what do we think about, in that case, what do we think about uh, his costume and the silliness of Pilgrim's unintentional costume when compared with Howard W. Campbell's equally silly and apparently highly intentional costume? So Campbell shows up at the beginning of Chapter 8 wearing... I'm going to read from it here. A white 10-gallon hat and black cowboy boots decorated with swastikas and stars, uh, sheathed in a blue body stocking which had yellow stripes running from his armpits to his ankles, uh, like that old, I I think it was either the Chargers or the Broncos that had a uniform like that a couple seasons back. Uh, His shoulder patch was a silhouette of Abraham Lincoln's profile on a field of pale green. So that's just a garish nightmare of a costume, and yet... 
I think I think there's an obvious juxtaposition there in that uh, Pilgrim shows up dressed, you know, in the with an impresario's coat like a muff and wearing silver Cinderella boots and looks ridiculous and is not taken seriously by the Germans. In fact, they they presume he's a joke. Whereas Campbell shows up dressed ridiculously and is taken seriously by the Germans and in fact talks with them, uh, talks with them briefly and cordially during the during the bombing. Right, and presumably he also has the sanction of the German government. He's forming this, you know, we're trying to form this free American corps, and he pres- he apparently had a famous German wife, and he, he's been accepted by German society despite his, you know, right. either insanity or just delusion about what, what is going to appeal to these POWs. So is there a notion of silliness, perhaps, or dignity, really being in the eye of the beholder or being in the eye of the governing body or... Or what? Well, I think it, it might have something to do with what we've been talking about with kind of an intentionality having actually very little to do with it, that it is sort of only relatively speaking. Because there's also a silliness to the Trafalmadorians. Despite their ancient wisdom, their description is pretty silly. But uh, the way they look, the way they look, you mean, and also, right, you know, right. I don't toilet know. Toilet plungers with hands on their heads. Right. There's sort of the... the uh, uh, the also the thought of like getting Billy Pilgrim as a as an example of the species, right? And and fixing him up with a uh, with a blue movie actress, right? Like Montana Wild Hack, and uh, I I don't know. Yeah, that this is like you know what what must they think? Um, the, you know what must their project be? Where uh, where this is the way they carry it? They they carry it out. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this, you know, a couple of things that Campbell says, I think, are interesting, dressed in his, in his body stocking. And, and body stocking, what, an, what a weird thing. Not like military uniform, you know, not like, you know, what, like uh, trousers and coat and like a, a dress uniform, right? Like, but like a unitard, like a wrestler's singlet, like uh, body stocking, Um is sort of, I mean, I don't know, is, is sort of interesting. Like a skiing uh, outfit, maybe, uh, to connect that to the ski instructors who are you know, Austrian but speaking German um, when they pick up Billy Pilgrim after they crash into the mountain. And they were also wearing a very silly outfit as well. They're wearing these ski masks that um, Billy thinks makes them look like they're trying to be funny um, by dressing up in blackface, which is another fascinating costume costuming choice um i in uh chapter seven actually not chapter eight but nevertheless more silliness but, but it's, yeah i also associate um stalking with uh uh with sort of being feminizing right and and a little bit with like billy being cinderella um a little bit so i think i don't know i feel like campbell is is maybe a foil for billy a little bit uh here but but the thing that he says is interesting right like you can fight the russians now or you can fight them later you know you're you're gonna have to deal with the communists uh at some point so why not join the the free what is it the free american corps and uh and fight fight against them now well of course is Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, n- no spoilers, guys, but it seems like, in fact, we got out of the Cold War without having to fight the Russians. Yeah. But sorry, Shana, go on. 
Oh, I was just going to say that um, his sort of uh, complicated or muddled up outfit, I guess you could see as a commentary on the muddled politics that uh, came out of World War II of, uh, uh, I don't know, alliances shifting and a confusion about how Russia was previously an ally and now we're going to have to fight them. Um, And not to spoil, but uh, this this theme, I think, is going to come up again. Um, But also... Yeah, go on, Jordan. Um, can I ask, has anyone read or seen the movie of Mother Night, where Campbell is the main main character? I've read the book, yeah. I read it, I believe, a couple of years after Slaughterhouse-Five, and I think I still own a copy. So do we want to talk about that? I mean, Well, I think it's elements? interesting. The, the big sort of central thing about Campbell in that book is that he's not actually a, uh, a Nazi propagandist, right? He's a double agent. Um, and I don't think that they tell you that in Slaughterhouse Five. They just present him as if he's this like Lord Ha Ha guy, um, right? Uh, and w- without dropping the penny that um, that he is in fact a, a deep cover agent, which makes uh, Derby's big heroic speech unutterably tragic. And I think it's a really interesting choice for Vonnegut to to leave that as an exercise to the reader, you know, a, a special depressing Easter egg for his true devoted fans who read all his past work. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's one of the things that, you know, Billy Pilgrim, for all his extra-temporal, not quite omniscience, I guess, clairsentience, uh, post-cognitive, pre-cognitive, uh, my... My my psychic adjectives are lacking here. For all his for all his sense, it's the one thing that Billy Pilgrim would not know because, uh, spoiler alert, I guess uh, in the in the universe that is being constructed here, no one ever finds out that Howard Campbell was actually a uh, a spy for the Allies. He is he is known as a Nazi war criminal, and he he spends his life as a Nazi war criminal. So it, it's. But of course, that that was known at least to Vonnegut at the time of this book, because Mother Night precedes Slaughterhouse Five by about four years in publication. So, what uh, what do we think is the what do we think is the point of of leaving that out, other than to just add to the general tragedy or to do a little bit of fan service for anyone else who'd read it? Well, I I haven't read it, um, but I I was going to point out that um, Vonnegut as the narrator, so Vonnegut as narrator, um, has said things within uh, this book and within these chapters that Billy Pilgrim could not know. Uh, For example, what Derby was thinking or what uh, Lazaro was muttering under his breath that Billy probably could not hear. So, um, yeah, as you were uh, suggesting, he could have uh, told us this. It wasn't like we are in a, a very particular part of Billy Pilgrim's head. We are part of Vonnegut's head in this book. So he could have let us know. I, I don't know why he didn't, uh, but I just wanted to throw that out there. I mean, it's it's worth at least raising the, the, the observation that it's possible that the two universes, though they share character names and characters and happens are not exactly the same universes that this isn't you know one necessarily connected vonnegut verse here um and so it's possible that this version of howard campbell is not in fact a an, a 
a double agent for the Allies. Actually, I was thinking when you were saying that, Ben, um, that I don't know what happens in Mother Night and what years it goes through, but um, in these chapters after um, or when Billy is about to die, it is in this um, interesting alternate history universe um, where the United States have been balkanized and he is in the, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the nation of Chicago. Um, And it's interesting in the context of this book because uh, it seems the theme over and over again is that you cannot change anything. You cannot change the inevitability of war. You can't change history. You can't change your life. And yet we have this huge uh, change uh, that is sort of noted in passing by Vonnegut, um, this alternate uh, history that I don't know if that lines up with any of his other books. So someone who has read more of them could let me know, but I'm going to doubt it. I, I don't think that that occurs much elsewhere. The, the closest comparable example I can think of is Vonnegut's novel Slapstick, which I think is written a few years. Hang on, I've got Google in front of me. Google's going to tell me. Uh, internet, internet, tell me a thing. Yes, which is written about seven years after Slaughterhouse-Five. And that depicts a slightly future United States, which undergoes a number of interesting social experiments and also has a number of odd physical and metaphysical things happen to it, but is not itself balkanized. So I don't think that's a prediction that Vonnegut is trying to make or a, I guess, shared meta-universe that he's trying to make consistent. Backtracking a little bit to what is the point of... uh of having this information be out there, possibly true or not, and then not not bringing it up. Um, I wonder, to what degree does it actually change the, the ethical calculus on, uh, on the big heroic speech, right? If the, if the guy who's coming in uh, as an American traitor to try to get you to fight the Russians for the Germans... Um, is in fact a double agent, and you tell him off heroically. Um, is it is it like more or less moral of a thing to have done, more or less heroic of a thing to have done? Because from Derby's point of view, like all of the information that he has that's informing his decision to do this uh, does not change, right? Um, so to the degree that it might be admirable in him to have done this, well, he's still the same guy. He's exactly the same in either scenario. And I wonder if that, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of like drawing at straws here, but could that have something to do with it? And then what? maybe leaving it, leaving it undecided like uh, is a way of pointing to that? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. The, the one thing that's interesting to me about the, the revelation, that little information about, about him being a double agent, is that that might actually explain the ridiculous outfit. Because the last thing that... Uh, Campbell wants to actually do is recruit anybody to his unit. Uh, even though <laughs> sure. he's telling the German he wants Germans he wants to do that, if he actually is interested in the welfare of these American POWs, the, this, the worst thing that could happen to these guys is they don these ridiculous uniforms and go into combat on the Eastern Front, where they're all going to die. Uh, so you know, the, by making his uniforms ridiculous, he can you know, as the expert on Americans, he can tell the Germans that no, no, this is. This is what will impress the Americans. They'll love this. They'll, they'll all want to wear this. Uh, but, of course, right. the Americans all look at that and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And so in that sense, Derby's kind of 
playing right into his hands. He wants an American to give up and make a rousing speech to, to rally the POWs. Sure, sure. Had had he there managed to successfully make an anti-war recruitment speech, right? <laughs> and and yeah. so much of like the the kind of thing that um, it hasn't really come up very much in the book proper, but the, the shows up in the in the prologue is one of the things that Vonnegut despises about war is the way that war um, makes people seem heroic through its kind of pageantry while you're still on parade over in the States. And think about that, um, the, the tract that Campbell writes about how uh, the American army is bad because it doesn't have a, a uniform that makes the people look like dangerous specialists in violence and et cetera, et cetera, right? So then he's like, all right, well, now I'll show them what a, what a real uniform looks like that will make them never want to pick up a rifle again. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is addressed a little bit in Campbell's speech also. I mean, we've been talking about the the sort of world-building aspect or the irony that, that might be in Campbell's character, but um, this is called out specifically by the narrator who says there are almost no characters in this story and almost no dramatic confrontations because most of the people in it are so sick and so much the listless playthings of enormous forces. One of the main effects of war, after all, is that people are discouraged from being characters. Uh, but old, old Derby uh, was a character now, right? And then he, he's, he's sort of characterized physically and then talks about the... Uh, um, you know, talks about the American form of government and and things. And this is, I think, this must be sort of deeply ironic, right? Because uh, even though it seems very moving in in the context, you know, um, uh, Vonnegut is writing this uh, in the wake of, I mean, in the wake of Vietnam and his wife, uh, not in the wake of it. I think Vietnam is still going on as he's as he's uh, as this novel is published, right? And like uh, tremendous social upheaval of the late '60s and uh, a great sort of disenchantment with um, uh, with the American form of uh, of government. So that so that Derby's sort of apotheosis here is, you know, is kind of ironic no matter how you slice it. I mean, whether because of, whether because of the presumptive uh, connections with the other novel or, or just because um, of the circumstances that this novel uh, was written in. I also want to point out, though, that um, Campbell's speech is quoted directly, whereas Derby uh, we get through indirect discourse. And I, uh, you could read it in two different ways, I think. Um, in one sense, because we are being told and not uh, showed, or uh, we don't hear exactly what Derby says, maybe that fictionalizes him more, and therefore he is more of a character, sort of a, more of like a knight in a medieval tale or something along those lines. Or you could see it as a way to alienate us from him further and show um, how ineffective the speech is. Um, we don't even hear it. Uh, it. It was so not useful in any sense. Um, so I don't know what you guys think of that, but um, I thought it was uh, an interesting choice on Vonnegut's part. The the one possibility for interpretation, I think this is probably pretty superficial reading, but and we've hinted at it already, is that Vonnegut doesn't tell us that Campbell is a uh, is an allied agent because ultimately it doesn't matter. Like his, in the sense that 
Billy Pilgrim's intentions or lack of intentions don't matter for the sake of all the things that happened to him. Campbell's intentions or lack of intention or just mere historical accident don't matter for the things that happened to him. Regardless of whether he's sincere or duplicitous, he still finds himself in a slaughterhouse basement in Dresden the day before it gets immolated, dressed in a blue body stocking with yellow lightning stripes, trying to recruit Americans to go fight in Russia. Like, regardless of his intent, that's where he ends up. And uh, to quote uh, to quote a Cormac McCarthy line from another context, if the rule you followed brought you to this point, of what use was the rule? Um, yes. <laughs> he, he, he said ending on a grim note, I, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Wait, hey, grim in a Slaughterhouse 5 uh, podcast? I don't know. At least well, the people in the Slaughterhouse got to see some boobies. Yes, it's true. Right? Like, what and butts. Of, yeah, and butts. And they made themselves very beautiful. <laughs> when so I mean, what we're told. <laughs> while we're talking about it, we should move on and talk about the the actual Dresden scene, although it's relatively short for all the buildup. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on the, the way the firebombing is portrayed here? Well, the, all the, the pretty girls from the shower are, are uh, blown up in the firebombing. Right, and it's for the for the most kind of mundane of reasons. It's for the most kind of mundane of reasons. It's basically, just, they just got stuck in a different house than the POWs. We're not really given uh, any. There's not really any sense that there was a rhyme or reason to putting these guys in Slaughterhouse Five and them in you know what's presumably Slaughterhouse Four or Six. Yeah, and they're. Uh, I mean, and ironically, they're like the they're the Germans, right? They're the citizens of this country, and and they're refugees, also kind of internal refugees, I think, from the the bombing of other uh, of other cities. There's something interesting about the the sort of persistent. Uh, metaphorical equation of Dresden with a eroticized female body, right? That uh, we had Montana equated with Dresden. Now we have these women who are, I mean, they're very prominently listed as one of the things that happens in the firebombing is that all of these women that we saw naked died. Um, I don't know if there's anything deeper there. It's just, I don't know. We, we've been kind of treading lightly around it, but this book is pretty weird about it. It's female characterizations, and um, it's, it's something that I'm becoming more and more aware of as I go on through it. And I'm always like, kind of scratching my head and being like, "Are you, are you going somewhere with this, Vonnegut, or is it just uh, just your own sort of stuff showing through?" Uh, shutting my mouth on that one. There, there might be some more boobies coming. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> um, but also, just to support your point with one more little piece of evidence, um, I, I believe a few times Vonnegut uh, was talking about the graceful curves of um, all of the, you know, uh, bombed out buildings that they had to climb over, which is just a fascinating turn of phrase, I think. Well, who would think uh, if you're in a moon like situation that you're going to call it a graceful curve that's bizarre to me of course it's a, it's a graceful curve that actually gets jagged and painful and hot to the touch once you get up close and have to start interacting with it much like uh pilgrim and we we have to suppose through him vonnegut are capable of i guess to put it bluntly appreciating women as objects from afar but have a hard time relating to them as human beings of of forming 
deeply meaningful relationships with them. Well, there are no, but, I mean, there are no characters in the book, so there can't be, there can't be relationships, right? But the, but the thing that's more interesting is there's no sort of model, there's no sort of normal model of people having relationships. But, the, but, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sort of troubled by that in this context, right? Like, this book is tasked with, with, uh, I mean, that is to say, on on behalf of my own politics, right? Like this book, this book is tasked with sort of talking about the the you know terrible after effects of going through an experience like the firebombing of Dresden in in World War II and and sort of war in general and the sort of the grotesque horror and the banal horror and the um, you know the the hobo as we march out of the the uh, the Russian uh, extermination camp the hobo is dead on the ground who had been on the on the train with them coming in and and it's you know it just seems fine right it just seems like part of the landscape or part of the thing right like so so there are no there are no sort of normal people, right, in this uh, in in this story. At least none that we we really get to know. They're all sort of damaged by the um, by the things that they've by the things that they've been through. And so, if they I, can't, you know, well, let me let me I, let me disagree with you as in a way of agreeing with you because I think there we're told there is one normal character here, which is Edgar Derby. He has a wife with whom it it seems like he has a relatively normal relationship. You know, when he's away from her, he's composing these letters in his head about, hi, honey, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Dresden's going to be safe. And, oh, this crazy thing happened at work. I got elected to be the head of the POWs. I'm really moving up in the world. So so Derby is kind of presented as as our normal relationship having guy. But, of course, the project of the book is getting us to the point where presumably he's going to die um, because the par- I think part of what this book is doing is kind of showing us that something like the firebombing of Dresden and the, the experience of it makes having these sorts of relationships impossible. And who's, who's, the, who's the guy who survives? It's Lazaro, you know, with, his, with Billy Pilgrim in his crosshairs at the end of, uh, at the end of Billy's life, right? That, that effing sadist who, you know, feeds ground-up glass to a dog, or, or uh, what is it, cut up bits of metal to a dog uh, because the dog, you know, pissed him off. Right. Yeah. Although you could say that's um, a very important relationship in the book, almost like a love affair. Like, I am going to wait for decades to kill you or to have you killed because it's just so important to me that you get what's coming to you. Um, and other people I will not even interact with or care about in any way because I, you know, don't have this revenge fantasy with them. It's like he's the spirit of the 19th century novel, right? Where, like... Yeah. Effect follows cause. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. He he has plans and he carries them out. <laughs> it's interesting that that he actually is against the bombing of Dresden. He thinks it's a great tragedy because you know he didn't have anything personally against any of those people. I thought that was a, a really kind of striking moment. Um, and he know. also likes to take. I mean, he he says in that same sentence, he likes to take out his enemies one at a time. You know, and there's something. I mean, there's something kind of charmingly old-fashioned about that, right? Like an old, almost like home 
Homeric mode of war, right, where the heroes sort of call each other out and and meet in the field of battle and do single combat and like you know you go up against Achilles and and this is uh, you know this is sort of a, a tragedy but also a kind of beautiful a beautiful thing um, set against sort of set against mechanized war, mass-produced war, war that involves uh, chemicals like like napalm, which is alluded to uh, in chapter eight. Um, right like i you know i i'm i paul lazaro is a is a effed up little sadist but he does i mean he does represent something that uh that that the context is so awful that the thing that he represents almost starts to look admirable by comparison. And it's so interesting because we've been talking throughout these weeks about how this book sort of demolishes all of these tropes of different uh, types of war literature from the past, uh, like modernist or uh, pre-modern. Um, but this, if he is supposed to be a character from you know uh, the ancient world or from uh, again like a medieval world where this one-on-one combat you know he's actually uh, actually effective he has a plan he sticks to it he gets it done um so in that sense i guess uh, vonnegut really isn't undermining uh this form of art of course you could also argue that lazaro didn't have any choice in the matter it was fated to be um because of the way time works um so i guess you could see it both ways but um well, it's interesting I, I like to me <laughs> I like the idea of, of Lazaro as a as a Victorian th- uh, throwback or holdover. Like he's he's re- he's really like Heathcliff in a way to to pull in the Wuthering Heights reference. Like he he nurses this grudge his entire life, and it it feeds him and it keeps him strong long past the point when he should have died. And of course, we see you know that that has that has uh, not tragic endings because. Billy Pilgrim's death is sort of muted through narrative circumstances to be impossible for it to be tragic, but it has destructive endings. It has endings that are at very least distasteful to us. We're not supposed to be rooting for the guy. There's also something very 19th century about uh, Lazaro being physically disfigured, right? Like, that's the way that uh, the villain in a Dickens novel typically is. (laughs) Yes, true. The the one thing that I think is important to to kind of note for context is that this book came out in 1969, just one year after the the kind of one on top of the other assassinations of Martin Luther King and RFK, and then of course JFK six years before that in a somewhat similar circumstance of a of a sniper taking out with a, a single shot. So I think it's hard not to look at Lazaro as, as kind of an assassin through the lens of the 60s, which was an age of uh, predominantly political assassinations, which which is why it's notable that uh, the assassination of Billy Pilgrim is 100% personal, even though he's apparently on this political mission at the, at the time, or at least a you know, quasi-religious mission or scientific mission, uh, whatever it is his message is, when he's assassinated, it's because of a long-ago forgotten non-existent beef he had with a guy he barely knew. It reminds me of uh, Kilgore Trout's uh, silly book, uh, The Gutless Wonder, um, where, which was about uh, the robot that um, was throwing, uh, you know, burning jellied gasoline on human beings and dropping it on people. Um, but 
no one had a problem with that. They had a problem with the fact that he had halitosis. So um, Lazaro is like these people in the same way. Um, he doesn't really, I mean, he's against the bombing, um, but he it's not the thing that he's going to uh, go through a revenge fantasy for. It's not like he's going to go track down the people who bombed Dresden. All he cares about is uh, Billy Pilgrim, whose one sin was being human, you know, kicking in his sleep. Um, he didn't have bad breath, but, you know, similar issues. Um, you know, he would cry out, that sort of thing. Um, so there is this uh, interesting idea that um, war is inevitable, like, uh, you know, there are robots that just do things because they're programmed to do it. And the worst thing you could be is just a human who is uh, not robotic in every way. Um, so I don't know what to make of that, really, but it's, it's a connection that I saw. Yeah, there's an interesting thing there, I think, because it's um, the the ethical philosophy that deals with war uh, tends to be talking about how, like, when you kill someone in war, it's not murder, right? Like, in, in certain circumstances, killing people during war is ethically permissible. Um, and that is the attitude of those characters in the the Gutless Wonder book, right? That, like, well, presumably, if you are engaged in dropping napalm on people, that's something that you did in the war, and that is okay, whether you're a robot or not, right? Um, but personalized violence is, is bad. And in a way, uh, both through the fact that Billy Pilgrim's killing is not a political assassination, which at the time that the book is being written, people maybe have a certain special horror of. Um, and through the fact that uh, that Lazaro ends up looking better than the people that bomb Dresden in this book, it's kind of a, a refutation of that. Not not a you know reasoned one, but a rhetorical one. You're meant to feel in your gut that, in fact, murdering somebody over a perceived slight is preferable to blowing up a city because uh, what does it says? The idea was to hasten the end of the war. Uh, have we covered everything in these chapters? I'm looking through my notes right now. Um, let, let's see. Does anyone have anything else that we you know, haven't said yet? I, I mentioned well, we- that there's boobs, right? Uh, yes, okay, I, I think you did. <laughs> yes. Okay. Th- thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. The one, I, we sort of hinted at it just now, but didn't really dwell on too much. Is the the actual appearance of Kilgore Trout in the narrative? Like he actually shows up as a character, and we meet him, and we get to we get to talk to him for a bit. And I don't have much to add except hearkening back to our earlier talks about the disparity of some between someone's silliness and the sobriety of their message or their dignity as a person trout as we've seen through glimpses of his novels is a is a source of apparent wisdom in the text and yet he's concerned with with only the most feeble and petty things like he he spends a good portion of the chapter in which we meet him uh, sort of pouting over the fact that one of his paper boys is quitting his routes. That means Trout is going to go have to deliver the papers himself. And he's just kvetching and puling and trying to find a way to get the boy to do it. And then Billy Pilgrim shows up and is like, all right, great, you drive me. I'll do it. Rah. Well, he's he's like, when you first see him, he's like Arlie Ermey, right? Like giving a long monologue to uh, to the characters at the beginning of Full Metal Jacket, right? Like to these, <laughs> to these uh, 15-year-old... 
um, children. I mean, he's sort of leading his own. He's he's sort of a, a patent leading his own children's crusade, you know, uh, and and with with like military discipline and and you know, I don't know a lot of like a lot of uh, drill instructor like like shouting you know and and doesn't even realize that he is that billy sort of identifies him with with the writer uh in fact he compares his activity writing like every day he he like opens the window and makes love with the air or with the world or you know what i mean something something like that sort of futile and uh, you know futile and empty and one-sided uh uh, rather than being, you know, and and then just loves being, just loves being an author at the party. <laughs> well, futile, futile and empty and one-sided, but also um, productive, right? And like fertile. Uh, it, it's not taking, but the thing that he's doing is a sort of noble, uh, procreative impulse or something along those lines. Right, and he was making love to the world. It wasn't like he was raping the world or fucking the world. It, it it does have a love to it. There there is some passion in Kilgore Trout that is kind of wonderful, even if he doesn't express it in the best way. And are we are we to understand Kilgore Trout as like a a vonnegut self insert more or less? Right. Well, a parodic, you know. Uh, self-conscious version of himself, I think. Right. I mean, no, no more or less idealized than the Vonnegut self-insert that that uh, poops his brains out. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah, the and that's Kilgore. interesting, then, right? Because there's all kinds of bodily, you know, uh, excreta coming out of Vonnegut into this novel. In that case. Well, I think that about is the end of the hour. So, unless uh, does anybody have any uh, any last things they want to hit? No, that's a good note to end on. <laughs> bodily bodily functions. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everything's been spewed out. We're done. Well, we have. I mean, yeah. Is it? Uh, it it'll be interesting. I mean, an interesting question going into next week is what is this? Because we've had the kind of emotional core of the book, right? So, what is what is the denouement going to be? Uh, and it it remains to be seen. Though I read ahead, I cheated and read ahead. I mean, I see for myself. I, I really like chapter eight as well. But I, uh, for me, the big emotional climax was the last chapter. And again, it's not a climax at all. But uh, I, I'm going to be interested to see how it affects everyone on an emotional, visceral level, as opposed to just an intellectual overthinking it type level. <laughs> Well, I guess uh, all there is left to say is just uh, we'll see everybody on the forums. And uh, the, other than that, just guten Nacht, Amerikanisch. Uh, schlafen Sie gut. And uh, with that, uh, meet us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.